Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. David Gaber attended the Eastman School of Music and the Juilliard School, and then became the founding cellist of the American String Quartet, where he performed for 28 years. He has been on the faculty of the Manhattan School of Music since 1984, and I was lucky enough to study with him in some of my high school years and college. We are so glad to have you join us today for our second episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you, Joel. It's a great pleasure to see you and to be with you again. Growing up in L.A., your mom, your dad, and your brother all played the cello and all have impressive resumes. What was it like to grow up in a family of cellists, and who do you think the best cellist was? Oh, my gosh. Well, it was burning hell, and the best cellist was not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it was actually kind of wonderful in a way because I, I had a wealth, a treasure trove of information at my beck and call, whether it was about technique or music or life in music, or career options, it was all there for me. And I knew early on, this is really what I wanted to do professionally, even though everyone else did. My dad was a career symphonic player in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. My mother was a rather well-known teacher in Los Angeles. My brother went on to become principal cello of Cleveland Orchestra. With all of that, I knew that chamber music was my beck and call. That was my black sheep moment of deciding that I wanted to do something very different from the others. But I'm forever grateful for what I learned from all three of my family members. I'm glad you brought up chamber music because on our inaugural podcast with Stephen Isserlis, we talked about how he views every piece of music he plays as chamber music, even his concertos with orchestras. Absolutely. So being a founding member of one of the premier string quartets for nearly 30 years, how would you say that's influenced you as a performer and a teacher? Well, it, and that's a great question. It's all about democracy in the very best and worst sense of it. But it's about making sure that every minute you are making music or discussing music or disagreeing about music, that there is a sense of what the collective goal is to park the ego, to really only think about why we're there. It's for the music, not for us. And I think that's an important thing for every musician to know. It's about the music. So that taught me a great deal. Later, when I went into music administration as a secondary career for a period of 14 years, that paid rich dividends to me in knowing how to deal with people. It must be really interesting to be on the road for as many concerts as you were with three other people, as opposed to an entire orchestra, like traveling with a family. I'm sure there's lots of relationships that you have to get used to and decide whether you're going to spend time together or not, and, and how that all balances out over time. Yeah, and the secret is really knowing when and how to separate yourself from the group when it comes to social activities, including travel. I very much would take my own flight, stay in my own hotel, and meet my colleagues at the at the hall for a rehearsal or wherever we would rehearse in between concerts. And I enjoyed my time with them very much, but like any human dynamic, you need time alone or apart from the 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 pack at a certain point in time. Did you have a favorite 
place you liked to travel to and play concerts? Oh my God, Italy was truly my favorite of all of them. I mean, the concerts were great, but it was really about the food. <laughs> <laughs> no, truly, I, I, I loved the Italian audiences. They are so warm, so knowledgeable, so receptive to groups from other countries. Some of the greatest halls I've ever played in have been in Italy. Uh, I mean, there are many other wonderful places that I have been to and enjoyed every minute of my traveling, truly. But Italy was always a, a return favorite. Being on faculty at one of the top conservatories in the country, what would you say is the difference between attending a conservatory versus a university music program? And what kind of student do you think would benefit from either institution? It's another great question. I find that the line between so-called liberal arts music schools as opposed to standalone conservatories has become more and more blurred, read the same, as time has gone by. When I was a student, there was a real difference between the two. And liberal arts was much more for those who were music adjacent and conservatories were for the diehards who really knew that that's what they wanted to do for a living. But what I've seen more and more is that the quality of education is pretty much the same. I mean, if you want to take a, a non-arts-related course and you're in a conservatory, then you really have to look outside the four walls. But as far as language study, liberal arts study, um, literature, they've become pretty much the same thing. I do find that there's always a certain number of students who want to do liberal arts for an undergrad in order to broaden their mind and their education, but without compromising the quality of their studies, the kind of people that they would be interacting with fellow students is pretty much the same in terms of the intensity of the desire to find a way into the profession. A school that I have still retained something of a relationship with is Eastman. I did some relief teaching for Stephen Doan last year when he was on sabbatical. And I was overjoyed to go back there and to work with some of the students, all of whom are extremely dedicated, but some were double majors with chemistry, with medicine, with physics. And yet I didn't feel that that in any way watered down their quality of playing, their quality of study or anything like that. And I love that, that there are music students these days who are passionate about more things than music. One feeds the other. And again, I don't see that there's any real diminution of the quality of, of a music student if they are double majoring in something which is completely unrelated to the arts. Although I would imagine it does take a special kind of student that can be so focused in both areas. Absolutely. I have challenges with that with some of my students getting them ready for their auditions and then trying to decide between whether they would go to one of the top university music programs or going to a conservatory, and then also taking three or four AP classes in their junior and senior year. And I'm pulling my hair out, which I have none left, saying... <laughs> there are very few of really, us left. <laughs> it's, it's really hard for students these days. Do you focus 100% on the music if that's where you want to go, but then leave yourself with no other area to focus on if you need to, so that you are completely ready for those auditions? Or do you continue to make sure that you're keeping your grades and your SAT scores and everything else up while trying to practice two or three hours a day getting ready for college auditions? I don't really know how I don't necessarily have the balance, but I have leaned towards telling people to take less AP classes if this is really where their focus is, because I feel it's so competitive to get into music well, school. Well, again, it depends on the, on the student. 
you know, some students absorb more information more readily. Others are more challenged in that way. But I mean, personally, I, I shouldn't say this, but I will. Personally, I have a real problem with the whole AP concept because I find it sort of elitist. There's costs involved, and it's very often more for students whose family can afford it and those who are less privileged but equal in intelligence or in their desire or their thirst, if you will, for information are denied that. So I find a kind of inequality in terms of AP, and therefore I'm not a great advocate for students doing it, unless there's really something specific that they're trying to get at, rather than just making their portfolio for a college application process more impressive. We're going to pause for a short break. To all of you other cello Sherpas out there nurturing future generations of cellists or any other instrument, we have a new feature just for you. Many of the topics we will cover here on the Cello Sherpa podcast are worthy of further discussion, so we wanted to let you know about teaching points we will be posting on our website after each podcast. We develop these materials with you and your students in mind. Feel free to copy them, hand them out, and use them as assignments to be completed after listening to our podcast, or just tools for raising the level of professionalism in your studio classes, rep classes, orchestra, or band programs. Please visit our website for more information and click on the Teaching Points tab. And as always, give us some feedback on what you'd like to learn more about on the Cello Sherpa podcast. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast from. This helps our rankings and makes it easier for others to find us. What recommendations would you give high school students preparing for their college auditions about how to perform at their best? The very, very first thing is to, as the saying goes, begin with the end in mind. To really know well in advance what one wants to do in an audition particularly at the undergraduate level, because at the graduate level, it becomes more clear. There's more experience and, you know, tread in in learning how to do those things. But at the undergraduate level, it's really important. The first thing is about repertoire. Choosing repertoire very, very carefully to play music that a student loves, loves to play and loves to listen to, but also is within their grasp. One of the real pitfalls that I've observed actually throughout my teaching career, and increasingly so, is that there are a number of students who come into an audition and they think that if they play the sixth box suite in Symphonia Concertana Prokofiev, that they're going to have a leg up on getting into the school. And in fact, it could not be further from the truth. We, the faculty, we know these pieces, we know them well, we're not impressed by a student bringing in repertoire of that complexity unless they can actually sit sit and deliver in ways that a lot of high school seniors simply can't. You know, that's a word to the teachers as well as it is to the students to be very careful about the guidance that's given for repertoire. It really should be within the reach of, of the player. Also, when choosing repertoire, I think it's very important to think about the fact that one is likely, assuming they're playing a live audition, with any luck, we'll go back to that next year, that they may be playing with a pianist they don't know and with whom they may have no rehearsal. And if they're playing Chopin Sonata or Rachmaninoff Sonata with the work that has a big piano work, one of the late Beethoven Sonatas, that it can 
create problems. So to be careful, you know, when possible, if one is in a region near where the audition is taking place, perhaps bring their own pianist. And if not, ensure they get some time with the pianist. But I think that that's, that's often uh, a problem. A student will choose. We've had, for example, a few Poulenc sonatas that have been performed. And they're playing with a pianist they've never worked with before, and it falls apart. Oh, wow. So nobody benefits from, from that kind of thing. The other thing I would say is in an audition to try to avoid uh, showcasing pieces or movements of pieces that have long piano inter interludes. Frank Sonata, Rachmaninoff Sonata, things like that, where, you know, the faculty is doing the crosswords puzzle while the pianist is playing their interlude. No disrespect to that music, but that's not what we're there to listen to. Another thing, too, is to be careful about choosing works in Scordatura. I found that there have been some pitfalls with that. The C minor box suite, the Kodai solo sonata, other pieces, lots of other pieces, to be very, very careful. You know, not that one should categorically avoid them, but they should know that there's a comfort in being able to quickly and effectively retune where, where it's necessary. Do you find that students, when they're under pressure, have more of a challenge tuning yes. than you normally would? You got it exactly right, Joel. The ear kind of, when we get nervous, the ear shuts down, unless we've practiced enough to how, know to avoid that kind of, kind of pitfall. Then there's practice strategy. <laughs> Learning the repertoire far enough in advance that one can learn it, get it into the bloodstream put it away, work on other repertoire that broadens the musicianship and the playing, and then come back to the repertoire. I've seen students who make the decision in August or September what they're going to play in March. And I think that's a mistake. So what would you say that a year in advance people should start preparing? Learn it in the junior year of high school, or possibly even earlier than that. And I love the idea of learning repertoire and then putting it away and then coming back to it. Yeah, there's a growth process that comes along with that. My gosh, yes. Another thing that I find is that students don't practice with a plan. In other words, when they're in the initial learning process of a piece, that's really when they should be getting fingerings, bowings, knowledge of the score down. But to try to perform sections of a piece early, too early on can set up bad habits, bad muscular and, and playing habits. So to really know what one is working on, I believe in the, the percentage. So when I have a student learning a new piece of music, I will say you spend 75% of your time working on technique and 25% of your time working on the music. And as the knowledge of the technical demands increase in the score and all that, then that percentage starts to flip. Less on the technique, more on the music. Well, I guess that's why if you bring something that's really technically challenging, you're setting yourself up for a difficult situation before you've even started because getting to the point where you've mastered the technique and then can add in the musicianship Correct. may be above where you're ready for. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's important. I also believe in practicing performing in a number of ways, mock auditions, learning how to power up or power down in order to simulate what it's going to be like when you're in a stressful situation. For example, running up and down stairs or taking a brisk walk 
trying a mock audition at uh, 11 p.m. or 7 a.m., you know, this kind of thing. A lot of major symphonic musicians talk about doing this before they go in for the finals of an audition. They will do things like drench their hands in ice-cold water, dry them off, and then sit down and play. If they know that they tend to get cold hands, you know, things, things along, along those lines. I also like the idea of practicing when it's possible in different acoustic settings because it helps us get more familiar with how we can play or how we must play, what kind of vibrato we need to use. If it's a deadly dry acoustic or if it's an overly live acoustic, how, how do we manage that? I think students should, should video record themselves often and look back at it, as painful as it is. My students tell me, especially now since everything is on Zoom, that they are so self-conscious when they do a recording of themselves, audio, video, or both. And there's all the more reason then to do that so that you know what kind of impression it's making on other people. There's another thing, too, <laughs> when it comes to making recorded auditions. Just the other day, we were listening to a really, really talented cellist play. And this person had no idea what was going on in the background. First of all, there was an unmade bed in the background. Second of all, the player's kitten was, was jumping up and down. The player was completely unaware of this, hiding behind a curtain, jumping out, doing all kinds of things. And we, the faculty, we were laughing ourselves silly because, and the playing was really very good, very good, but it was so distracting. I bet. So know, know what it is, you know, one is, is putting together for this. I think it's good to have mock auditions with fellow students, have them start and stop you. Okay, that's enough. Let's go on to this now. Just to rattle a player enough so that they develop calluses, so to speak, before they go into an audition. I think those are, are really important. With recorded auditions, other than making sure there are no cats or other live animals in the room when taking when creating the audition, no unmade beds. Make sure the camera angle reflects what the panel wants to see. We want to see basically from the scroll to the bridge. That's basically what we want to see. Of course, we want to see the face too. But we don't need to see the feet. We don't need to see the background all that well. So those are important things to, to keep in mind. And that lighting is clear. I've seen so many recordings where it's in darkness and it creates the wrong impression. Most pre-screening auditions these days are recorded and it can influence a faculty member visually. I've seen it happen. So that's something else to keep in mind. The other thing is that some people have the means to uh, engage a professional recording studio. Others do not. If one can do a recording studio, great, because then there are certain elements that you don't have to worry about micromanaging, which take time, not to mention expense. But with a good iPhone and a good tripod and a good neutral background, one can create a very good recording at home. Would you recommend the use of a USB mic, though, at a minimum, if you're using an iPhone? I would. I definitely would. You know, external mics de do help, although it's amazing how many students don't know what the gain feature is on a microphone. More things in terms of, of preparing for an audition, which is trial lessons with a, a teacher, a, a desired teacher with whom one might wish to study. It's amazing how many students are still fearful 
about trying to do that. They think that they're either being inappropriately political or overly forward if they approach a teacher. We expect it. It's totally understandable and it's totally fine to do that. And these days it can be done by Zoom. It doesn't mean taking a flight to have a trial lesson with, with a teacher. We are all so accultured to teaching online these days. Do we like it? Not particularly, but we're very much accultured to it. And if it saves a young person hundreds or thousands of dollars to travel for a, a trial lesson, everybody understands that that is a viable I do think that that is one of the silver linings that's come out of this pandemic is that absolutely virtual teaching has become more acceptable. And now we have the opportunity to meet with people from all over the world and work with people from all over the world. And that's really one of the things that we're working on through the cello Sherpa is that if we do coachings that we can do them from anywhere in the world now. And as far as coachings for auditions, trial lessons, this is a, is a great development that I think will be very useful for people moving forward and something that we shouldn't lose. I think we can all get better at doing this. Definitely. I completely, I'm, I'm, I'm so with you a year ago, I would have said, well, Joel, not so much, but now it's a changed world. And this pandemic has been dreadful for the entire planet. But the two things that I think have come out of it in terms of being in the teaching field are, one, I think it's created a little more humility for all of us. And secondly, it's helped us to understand that technology is on the increase and we can use it to our best advantage when we can't be in the same room together, which, which is good. Just to touch very briefly on performance psychology, it's really important to try to know how a student can manage unfamiliar surroundings, namely the audition room. If they have the opportunity to actually visit the room, even if it's just to look in before an audition, it should be taken advantage of. Even if it's looking at a photograph of the venue where the audition will take place, it can help a young person become a little bit more familiar with it. Also, it's important to know for a student what you can control and what you cannot control. You can control your reactions to things. If there's a noise or a faculty stops you to move on, or if there's a faculty squabble that breaks out, not that those things ever happen. No, no. <laughs> to not be rattled by that, to block out everything other than what one has to do. The other thing in, in the category of performance psychology is learning how to briefly speak to the panel. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to play. Or if they need to say their repertoire, avoid the word um. <laughs> yes. Or mispronouncing names of composers. That's a dead giveaway that someone is not in the best shape to be auditioning. <laughs> So those are very important things. Last thing I'll say on the category of this is about travel planning. Actually, no, there are two last things. Travel planning to allow extra time to get from point A to point B, especially in the wintertime. I've had students that just never make it to an audition because of snowstorms or flight irregularities or other things that come up that interfere with it. Travel planning is important. And for those who are listening that happen to be cellists, Please buy a seat for your instrument on the airplane. Yes, that does make sense. Just to play devil's advocate there, I do have one of the Stevenson travel cases that I used for many, many years for auditions. And I think 
if you have a modern cello, I think that can be a cost savings if you're taking a lot of auditions. I've also lent that out to my students, but I would not put anything that's older or anything that's unique or anything that, that the maker's not living anymore. I mean, that's just the way that I've done it with my students because it is so cost prohibitive. That is absolutely true. But when possible, I would say do that because the, even with these flight cases, which are great, I know those Stevenson cases, and a lot of my students have used them over the years, especially recently, they're still the unknowns that happen. And you want to limit the unknowns when you've got an audition to play as much as you can. We had a bassist that we hired a, a few years back that took the audition, traveled back, and on his trip back, something ran over the neck of the case. Oof which with base cases, there's no choice. They can't buy a seat. No. Um, luckily, again, it was a modern instrument. He was able to have the neck repaired and the airline did what they were supposed to, but it's not uncommon to have damage. I even had my second cello. I checked into a travel case and on my travel back on a one-way flight back home, they never took it off the plane. So for two days, it flew around oh, the country. Oh my God. Got it back. It was, it was somewhat damaged. The case had done its job. And it wasn't damaged beyond anything that was able to be rectified and the case was repaired and the airline handled it. But it is always a risk. I would never put my 1750 cello in there. No, no, no. Made the never. same year that Bach died. I'm just not going to risk that. <laughs> Well, this, this is really, really helpful information. I think people are going to find all of your tips to be incredibly helpful when preparing for auditions and exactly what I was hoping to have you talk about today. Oh, it is my pleasure, Joel. I've, I've enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you. So where can people find you? Are you on any social media? You know, I use LinkedIn, but beyond that, I'm a Luddite. I don't use Facebook or other things, but I'm certainly reachable through the Manhattan School of Music website. And I know that you also do a lot of trial lessons ahead of auditions. I do. I'm always happy to do that. And I, like many of us fellow cellists, I do not charge for a trial lesson. I never charge. I think that's great. I've had a few students that have been quoted up to $200 for a trial lesson, yep. which I've yep. always found to be a bit unfair. You and I are not so old, especially you, <laughs> to remember what it was like when we were trying to find our way into college and the costs involved. I'm humbled by what people have to spend now in order to make this all work. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Cello Sherpa podcast. It is a pleasure, Joel. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our second episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. We look forward to our next episode where we interview Felix Wong, cello professor at Vanderbilt's Blair School of Music. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and mostly edited by Joel Dallow with some much-needed assistance from Mark DeClaudio at 3Wire Creative. You can find more information about them at 3, and that's the number 3, wirecreative.com.